Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Victor Davis Hansen, author of one of the ten essays on populism that comprises the new Criterion's new collection, Vox Populi, The Perils and Promises of Populism. Professor Hansen has been one of the most trenchant observers and analysts of President Donald Trump and the political movement over which he has presided. And his essay concerning the president in Vox Populi is fittingly titled The Unlikeliest Populist. Professor Hansen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The term populism has been thrown around repeatedly throughout history, and it's often used pejoratively to put down one's political opponents. How do you define the term populism? Well, I think it's an appeal to a group that's not based on credentialing. In other words, uh, politicians or political leaders try to appeal to uh, the majority of the population without referring to or relying on particular people's credentials. And I guess we could call that an anti-elite appeal. And In other words, an argument is to be adjudicated on whether it seems practical, commonsensical, not whether the person who's advocating has a particular degree from a particular university or a particular job or a particular resume or a particular vocabulary or a particular manner of speaking or appearance. It's just common sense. The message is all that matters, and it, it lives or die by its own merits. What is it that makes Donald Trump, as you term him, the unlikeliest populist? Well, he's a creature of affluence and comfort. He was He's a billionaire. He was born into money. He lives in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the United States. He's in a blue state. So the idea that he would appeal to working class people in key purple states such as Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Ohio in a way that other governors like Scott Walker or Chris Christie that cultivate populism uh, would not is very unlikely. And yet he had a manner of speaking and an appearance and an interest in particular issues that they found resonated with them in a way that it didn't with other Republican candidates in the primary, to take one example, who were senators, governors, public intellectuals, etc. What, in your view, did President Trump understand about American voters that the 16 other candidates out there lacked? Well, I think he saw that the status quo or business as usual was enriching a coastal elite. By that, I mean people basically from Boston down to uh, Florida and from Seattle to San Diego. And these are people who had the skill or the professional know-how or the experience or the inherited capital to take advantage of globalization. And that means transference of jobs across borders, transference of labor and capital. And the people in between who depended more on, I guess we'd call it muscular labor that could be easily reproduced elsewhere were not beneficiaries of that. Now, the common wisdom said, so what? We're now in a multiracial, multicultural society, and they're going to be has-beens anyway. But Trump's instincts told him that we're not quite there yet, that the majority of these people 
who were left out from globalization. Their, their wages had stagnated. They were not eligible for affirmative action. They were not taking advantage of privilege in terms of university admissions, to take one example. They didn't qualify for either affirmative action or uh, the old boy network where somebody calls up and calls a friend and uses capital or influence to get his son or grandson in. And Trump saw that those people actually would determine future elections because the country split 50-50, but under the electoral college system, one vote in Michigan or one vote in Wisconsin or one vote in Pennsylvania is worth 100 votes in Texas, which won't go blue, or California that won't go red. And he saw that. And so he, I think Taylor made, whether it was sincere or insincere, doesn't matter. He Taylor made a message based on bringing back industry, bringing back capital, uh, enforcing the borders, not making the children of the middle, lower middle classes fight for wars that were dreamed up in Washington, et cetera, et cetera. And that appealed to people in about 10 to 15 states. And he flipped about six to eight million voters who otherwise would have either not voted or voted Democratic. In your view, how much of President Trump's political success is personality-driven versus indicative of a greater political shift? And what I'm getting at there is, is Trumpism, in your view, going to become a new political philosophy that cuts across party lines? Or do you believe that the Trump movement is, in effect, an outlier in American political history? I think it's about half and half. I think he has much more charismatic appeal than does Bernie Sanders, who was a 73-year-old socialist, and yet he had some of the issues that Trump had in the populist sense that resonated. So I think about half of Trump's agenda is transferable, and I think the Republican Party will not win at the national level. We should remember it's lost four out of the last six elections, and it hasn't won 51% of the vote, I think, since 1988. 51%, I mean, that's pretty, that's a low bar. And and what I'm getting at is if it does not return to the idea of enforcing the border and worrying about U.S. citizens and whether trade is not just free but also fair, it's not going to do well. But with Trump, he was a more effective spokesman for that anger than were other candidates that, under traditional definitions, uh, were considered more sober or judicious or experienced. And Marco Rubio was supposed to be more charismatic, young. Jeb Bush was more affable. Ted Cruz was more informed. Carly Fiorina was a better outsider. Ben Carson was a better outsider. Chris Christie and Scott Walker had more experience, but they didn't have that celebrity cachet that Trump had developed from living in New York and being on television. So I think about half of it is his message and half of it is the unique messenger. You describe four issues that form the core of Trump's populism, the first being trade and jobs, illegal immigration, a new nationalist foreign policy, as you term it, and political correctness or political incorrectness, which binds all of these other issues together. How would you assess the execution part of this agenda to date? Is Trumpism or or Trump's populism being implemented at the federal level? What's your report card grade? I think it's about a B. And by that, I mean, if I look at those issues again, uh, we got out of the tra- Trans-Pacific 
trade accord. We're looking, we're looking at um, NAFTA. The economic agenda is getting, I think, in the third quarter will be close to 4% GDP. The tax cut on corporate taxes has got Europe very worried. Take one example, Japan and China as well, that capital and jobs may be coming back to the United States. That's what Trump said he would do. Uh, we're about whether, depending on who we read, we're somewhere between 60 and 70 percent down on illegal immigration, which he promised, even though he hasn't built a wall. His foreign policy is Jacksonian. He doesn't mind bombing the crap, as he said, out of um, ISIS, but he doesn't seem to want to put large ground. He's not going to have a big surge in Afghanistan. I don't think we're going to see an engagement like Libya under him as we did under Obama. So I think he's pretty good on that promise as well. That is, he has a Jacksonian foreign policy, recreation of deterrence. The trade is pretty good. Political correctness, that was the easiest of all because it can largely be done through executive orders and symbolic rhetoric. And whether it was the attack on the take the knee movement in the NFL or the, the hyperbole about bringing back Merry Christmas, for example, or trying to get the LGBT um, rules in the DOD revised. He, he was pretty unafraid to, to appeal to what he felt 51% of the, the populace wanted rather than what the University Foundation uh, media crowd wanted. Historians, political historians, oftentimes like to talk about realigning elections, which occur once every generation or so, be it in 1932 or 1968. Do you see 2016 as being one of these watershed events in both U.S. political history and in world history? And where does the Trump presidency kind of fit in into the political trends that are transpiring globally? Well, to answer the first question, I think it sort of destroyed the conventional wisdom about the trajectory of the country. Obama had supposedly taught us that the white population was shrinking, we were going to be a multiracial society, and that we had to appeal to one's identity rather than their common character, and that would win you an election. And Obama did do that through record registration of black voters, and especially of Latino and Asians that voted about 65% for him. Trump comes along and says, wait a minute, most, to take one example, Latinos are not going to flip California to the conservative side, and they're not going to trip Texas um, to the liberal side, and that's about 65%. And the effort to appeal to one's identity will be just as damaging as it will be enhancing because it will turn off key voters in more important states. Nobody quite figured out that, but he came along and and said that. And then his message of economic populism and border control was basically, I'm going to make identity politics irrelevant because if I can get, and as he's bragging now, he got the Latino so-called Latino unemployment rate down to its lowest level and African-American unemployment's down. So he's trying to argue, I may not appeal to you uh, in a tribal fashion, but I'm going to make you much better off than those who do that. And we'll see how that works. But that was a revolutionary approach. Worldwide, um, he represents an emphasis that a person living in a particular nation or state has their, their first allegiance to that state 
and not to some superannuated or super uh, national organization like the EU or NAFTA or NATO or whatever we call the West. And so that's that's catching on. I think we saw with Brexit. It's it's endemic of the pushback against Germany uh, on issues of immigration, issues of monetary policy, mercantilism, and you can start to see it even in Asia where uh, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan are starting to think in terms of protecting themselves, being strong, stronger, and relying more on traditional allies. And so Trump basically said, we're going to be friends with particular people. And you can see that in this national security strategy that came out two weeks ago. We're going to have allies, and we're going to treat them as friends, and we're going to have opponents, and we're going to treat them as enemies, and neutrals will have to pick which side they want, sort of a Manichaean. There was no appeal, as Obama did, that we're all citizens of the world, and we're all worried about global change or LGBT issues, uh, which were in his strategic assessment. So it's sort of a return to 19th century pride in your nation and national interest, and then you admit that that exists, and then you deal with it rather than to deny it and suppress it and have an elite-controlled international body that would try to adjudicate across national boundaries. And one element of the populist message is an aversion to uh, or a fear of tyrannical administrative state or deep state, as it's been termed. And if you are a member of the administrative state or the deep state, you're a government bureaucrat and you take President Trump at his word, then his agenda poses an existential threat essentially to your livelihood, your power, uh, all the credentials that you've accumulated over time, over time, and thus the resistance to the Trump agenda. What, in your view, are the consequences of the FBI and the Department of Justice's actions with respect to both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Well, you can see in one case that there was a much stronger reason to indict uh, Hillary Clinton because she clearly broke the law. And yet the so-called deep state felt that their performance in investigating her would be adjudicated by a Clinton administration. When You have people saying, pollsters saying 96% chance that she was going to win people like James Comey or Assistant Director McCabe or people in the DOJ like Loretta Lynch, uh, they made the necessary adjustments to make sure that she was not going to be indicted of anything, even though the evidence was overwhelming and the conflict of interest was overwhelming. But nonetheless, that's what the deep state did. They did not want to find themselves on the wrong side of President Hillary Clinton. In the case of Donald Trump, they were much more muscular because they thought that he was going to lose and he posed no threat to them. So as early as October, in the case of the skulls called Steel, Christopher Steele Fusion GPS file, which Hillary Clinton paid for and which was based on Russian collusionary sources, they made sure the deep state that it got in the hands of the FBI, of the Obama Justice Department. And that was leaked, and it was probably used uh, as a basis for a FISA court order, which then surveilled U.S. citizens associated with Donald Trump, again, on the premise that he was going to lose, and that incriminating information would come up to an investigatory agency, the FBI, CIA, NSA, whoever they were, probably the FBI. And then that material would be deliberately leaked, and the names would be unmasked, as we knew 
from the request of Samantha Powers, who's in her house, James Clapper, John Brennan, Ben Rhodes, that happened. And then that information leaked out before the election. What they didn't figure is that the people who were going to vote for Trump saw that as confirmation of the deep state and had no effect on them, at least in the key states which he flipped. So now we're in a situation in which the reason for the special investigator no longer exists because Hillary's not president and there's no pressure from her and from the deep state people who wanted her to win to continue this collusion investigation. There's no evidence that Trump investigated. So we're now we're sort of in a catch-22. Mueller has to continue, but he's going to have to do one of two things. He's either going to have to start indicting the Podesta group or he's going to have to look at the Fusion GPS, or he's going to have to look at improper FISA orders. He's going to have to go back and look at why people who had conflicts of interest did not uh, indict Hillary Clinton. Or he's going to have to go back through his 17 lawyers and start uh, reassigning, which we're already seeing happening in the case of both the DOJ and the FBI, reassigning lawyers that have clear conflict of interest. And only in Washington would a investigator like Mueller think that you could have members on your team that were the vast majority of which had donated to the Clinton campaign or they had exchanged texts while conducting a fair uh, mocking the target of their own investigation or in the case of the DOJ's one of their uh, top officials that was investigating perhaps Hillary Clinton's wife was a recipient of Clinton source cash or you would have a lawyer in the Mueller team that had represented Ben Rhodes, the Clinton Foundation, or you could have a DOJ like the Orr couple in which one spouse was actually working on the fusion. And only a person so blinkered in a part of that deep state apparatus in the Washington, New York quarter would not see anything wrong with that and would rely on the media, the coastal media to say, how dare you impugn the honor of Robert Mueller when everybody else in between the, con- the coast says, what kind of idiot is that? Why would you, we can't do that what we do. We, don't, we wouldn't do that at work when we have an investigation or somebody gets fired at work or somebody's up for a job. You can't have that level of overt bias. You play by different rules, and yet they still can appreciate how bad it looks. Yeah, and I should note that you've written a fantastic piece for National Review that goes through the links of all of the folks comprising Mueller's special counsel, all of whom have ties to, uh, in many respects, the the Clinton campaign, Clinton interests, uh, and a clear bias against the very person they're investigating. I guess the final question is, where are the actions of all of the folks who oppose the president leading? Is it impeachment at any cost? Is it we have to figure out what we can throw at the wall that sticks to tarnish the president in the court of public opinion, and then we can uh, raise high crimes and misdemeanors when there may be none? Where does this all lead? Well, they have about three fallback positions. The, The media hysteria, the Hollywood hysteria, the university hysteria, the Democratic Party hysteria, the never Trump hysteria is, is aimed at winning the House. And then they hope through an impeachment process to refer it to the Senate. And either they've won the Senate or they'll have enough uh, fence sitters that he will abstain and they can convict him. I don't think that's likely. So the fallback position is 
no matter what happens in the midterm election. They can continue this every day. So today we look and say that Melania Trump wants to pull out and destroy a 200-year tree that Andrew Jackson planted. Not a true story, of course. The tree's almost decrepit and falling down, but that's the type of stuff we're going to read every single day. And we're going to try to keep, we're being the anti-Trump movement, his approval rate below 40%. If we do that, then people on the Republican side won't feel confident about supporting Obamacare repeal, or they won't feel secure about building the wall because they don't want to run on a ticket where the leader of that ticket is 40%. That's, that's the idea, and they can emasculate his agenda. And then finally, they can render him like Harry Truman in 1952, who went out of office with 22%, or George Bush, who went out with 31 whose last year or two were pretty much irrelevant. And that would be the last two years of his administration, a first term, or maybe setting the stage for defeating him. But the, again, the purpose is to to keep up this drumbeat to make him so beyond the pale, so unpopular that the independent fence sitter voter just doesn't feel comfortable going against the grain and supporting him. And people in his own party, even if they vote for him, they won't want to defend him in a muscular fashion. They'll think, you know what? Uh, people at work or people at my think tank or people at my magazine, I just don't want to get out ahead of this because Trump will tweet this or they'll say this about him and then I'm tagged with him, so I'll just be quiet. And I think we saw that in the 2006 election where his actual support was much, much higher than what's polled. I think even today, his approval rating, if we could close the doors and have a person push a button, Trump or no Trump, it would probably be closer to something like 48% and 42 or 41. We've been speaking with Professor Victor Davis Hansen, who authored one of the excellent essays that comprises Vox Populi, The Perils and Promises of Populism. Professor Hansen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.